to you the opening paragraph of a book by Irvin Yalom, who's a noted psychiatrist teaching at Stanford. He wrote this wonderful book called Love's, Love's Executioner. This is how he begins the book. I do not like to work with patients who are in love. Perhaps it is because of envy. I too crave enchantment. Perhaps it is because love and psychotherapy are fundamentally incompatible. (laughs) The good therapist fights darkness and seeks illumination, while romantic love is sustained by mystery and crumbles upon inspection. I hate to be love's executioner. So the question that comes to mind for me is whether there is a kind of love that doesn't crumble upon inspection and that actually is sustained and enhanced by illumination. What is the difference between the enchantment of falling in love which we all have known ourselves or seen in other people. What's the difference between this enchantment of falling in love and the quality of being when we're standing in love? So I think these are two very different qualities. We may have met people in our lives who are quite outstanding to us, who embody this feeling of standing in love, of being love. And when we meet people like that, it's always a most extraordinary kind of presence. Many of you have heard us speak over the years. One of our teachers who died recently, her name was Deepama, woman in Calcutta, who had the deepest levels of understanding of suffering and the deepest levels of expressing and embodying love. And being in her presence was so amazing because the love that she expressed was not an enchantment. It was a quality of unconditional giving. It's as if she were a fountain of blessings. And she would bless everyone, all beings equally. There was not that sense of discrimination. She would bless animals, she would bless airplanes. (laughs) Wherever she was going, it was just this blessings of love. That same kind of feeling experienced at times with His Holiness the Dalai Lama you know, and the late Karmapa. Really great beings who, when you're with them, they make you feel 
as if you are the most important person in the universe to them. That's a nice feeling. <laughs> and it comes from this amazing quality of love that they have. It's a quality of being. What is it? It's really this state or this quality of metta that the Buddha talked about. It's quality of loving-kindness or loving-care. And it's a generosity of the heart which simply wishes ourselves and others to be happy. It's the very simple and deep wish, may you be happy, may you be free of suffering. What characterizes it so strongly <clears throat> is that when we are filled with this feeling of metta, this generosity of the heart, there is not a seeking of self-benefit. We're not expressing it for something in return. There's no expectation of getting anything back. It's the simple wish, may you be happy. And there's tremendous power and tremendous purity in that simplicity. The purity of metta, the purity of this kind of love, comes about because it is not mixed with anything harmful. Either harmful to ourselves or harmful to other people. A single moment of metta, and maybe you had, perhaps today or perhaps during the week, you'll have one single moment of deep and genuine metta. It's like pure gold. There's no impurity mixed in it. Its only wish is for the happiness and peace of others. The story which expresses this quality, which I like very much, it's of the Zen monk, hermit, poet Ryokan, who lived in the middle of the 18th century in Japan. He lived up in a little hut in the mountains, and it's said that he would go out and play all day with the children and then go back to his hut at night. He led this very simple, this very simple life. He had very few possessions. He went back to his hut one night he saw that a thief had come and stolen the few things that he had. Maybe his eating bowls and pots or whatever. So the hut was completely empty. Being the great poet that he was, his first response was a haiku poem. After coming back in the evening and seeing everything stolen, 
he either said or wrote, the moon at the window, the thief left it behind. How would it be if we came back to our homes (laughs) and everything was stolen? Oh, the the moon at the window. (laughs) There's a tremendous amount of love that's there. You know, that just takes in everything. It takes in the situation, it takes in the thief. This is the purity of this quality. The characteristic of metta is a tremendous softening of the heart. It softens our hearts and it makes our minds very smooth and very pliable very workable. It's characterized by feelings of benevolence and feelings of goodwill. And this softness and pliability that comes through metta has an added benefit of being the foundation for the development of wisdom. Because when our hearts are soft, and our minds are spacious, then there is a great deal more patience. And we're not so easily irritated by things. We're not reactive to disturbances so much. And because of this patience and non-reactiveness, we're actually able to see the true nature of things in a much clearer and more objective way. We see what's skillful and we see what's unskillful. We see what leads to real happiness, what leads to suffering. And because we can see more clearly, we can make wiser choices, which in turn brings more happiness to us. So all of that is built on this foundation of loving-kindness. Loving-kindness brings softness, softness brings patience, patience brings non-reactivity, Non-reactivity brings discriminating wisdom. Discriminating wisdom brings right action. Right action brings happiness. There's something so beautiful about it all. You know, once we understand how things are working, One of the great beauties of the Buddha's teaching is that it's about how we can develop these qualities in ourselves. It's not simply an admiring of the qualities in other people. It's really seeing them, seeing the possibility and the potential, and then knowing and understanding how can we develop them in ourselves. The Pali word for meditation is bhavana. Over these last few years, we've been making repeated attempts to learn some Pali, which has borne a little bit of fruit. One of the fruits is just in a little deeper understanding of this word, of bhavana. It's the causative form of the verb to become. 
or to develop. And so when we take a look at it, it means to cause to be developed, or to cause to become. This gives a whole different flavor to the meaning of meditation. Like when we're meditating, it's not that we sit and do some practice and just hope that it goes someplace, or hope that something happens. If we really understand what meditation is about and the process of it, we see that we are causing certain things to be developed. Whether it's mindfulness, whether it's concentration, whether it's loving-kindness. The meditation is causing it to be developed in our minds and in our hearts. When we understand this, it's tremendously empowering for us because we see that we actually have the ability to do this. Thich Nhat Hanh, who is a wonderful Vietnamese meditation master and poet and social activist and peace activist and wonderful combination of qualities, he wrote, Practicing Buddhism is a clever way to enjoy life. Happiness is available. Please help yourself to it. There's so much truth in that. You know, we can get so caught in our own predicaments and stories and in love with our suffering that we don't see or we forget that actually happiness is available and there's a way to become happy. There's a way to develop, to cause to be developed beautiful and wonderful states of being. It's very easy to appreciate and recognize the beautiful qualities of metta. It's it's fairly obvious to us. But there are many times in our lives when we don't feel this spaciousness, we don't feel this love, we don't feel this softening of the heart. I think it's very helpful to understand what is happening at those times. What is it that's blocking or preventing the arising of these feelings of love? There are two powerful enemies of metta. They're forces in the mind which are strongly and deeply conditioned within us. And so we have to learn about these enemies of metta so that we can recognize them when they come And by that recognition, we're no longer blindly identifying with them or getting lost in them and therefore strengthening them. If we understand that these enemies are the forces which destroy loving-kindness, then we can begin to take the appropriate response to them. The first of these forces is something which is called the near enemy of metta, the near enemy of love. And it's called the near enemy because it's a quality of mind that looks like love, 
that acts like love, that masquerades as love, but is not love. And so it fools us. The near enemy, this near enemy, is the force of desire. It's the force of wanting. Metta, or loving-kindness, is the gift of love. Metta is an act of generosity. Desire is a wanting something. And just in that differentiation, I think you can see and feel the difference. Metta is a simple wish for others to be happy, and desire is a wanting of something in return. Wanting to be accepted, wanting to be loved, wanting another person to be a certain way. That wanting is not love. That wanting is not metta. The problem that we face in our lives is that when desire comes masquerading as love, it's very difficult to tell the difference. We get confused. This near enemy deceives us. Why is that? Because there are certain similarities. And so unless we're seeing clearly, we get fooled. With both metta, loving-kindness, and desire, there is a movement towards another person. We feel that energy going towards. And with desire and metta, both situations, it can often feel good. Now, when we're in that enchantment of falling in love and filled with desire, there can be wonderful feelings associated with that. You know, and the excitement of it and the rapture of it. And so because it's both a going towards and because they're both can be pleasurable, we tend to confuse them. And this happens over and over in our lives. It's helpful to reflect on the problems and difficulties that come when we confuse these two qualities of love and desire. Both in our meditation practice and in our lives, it's very helpful to begin disentangling them, to see the difference. And one way we can do that with some attention is to see what kinds of states follow from each of these two qualities. What comes from the feeling of metta? And what comes from the feeling of desire? Where does insecurity come from? Where does possessiveness come from? Where does fear come from? Is it from desire or is it from loving-kindness? Where does projection come from? Where does the subsequent disappointments come from? 
Is it from love, loving-kindness, or is it from desire? Where does the feeling of peace come from? Where does the feeling of contentment come from? Is it from love, or is it from desire? And it's not just to sort of accept this theoretically. The real task for us is to look in our lives, to look in our practice, to look in our relationships, and to see, to explore, so that we're using our lives as a vehicle for deepening our understanding. This mind of ours is tremendously subtle and conditioned by so many different forces. It takes a great interest and a great willingness to begin to disentangle the tangle, to begin to separate out some of these different elements and forces which may have been jumbled together. Whether or not we are practicing metta, practicing loving-kindness, or practicing desire and wanting is totally up to us. It does not depend on any external circumstance. And so it's useful to see what are we practicing in our lives? What are we cultivating? The second great enemy of metta is something which is called the far enemy. And it's called the far enemy because it's a quality which is totally opposite to the feeling of loving kindness. It's not a feeling that's close and looks like metta. This one no one mistakes for metta because it's just the opposite. And these are the feelings of anger and hatred and ill will and aversion. One should not underestimate the effect of these qualities on our minds and hearts. Because this far enemy of metta has the power, in the moments that they arise, to actually destroy the loving feeling. When anger is strong, when aversion is strong, when hatred is strong, in those moments there is no metta, there is no love. There are two kinds of ill will, two kinds of aversion. One is a very strong kind, it's an aggressive kind. It's the kind that strikes out at people, at situations, and we can strike out in our thoughts, we strike out in our speech, we can strike out in our actions. This form of ill will is extremely rough and it causes a great deal of harm to other people. When we're venting a lot of anger in a very direct and aggressive way, that's the verbal equivalent of just beating somebody. It's a very rough energy, and it causes a great deal of harm. So then, it's helpful to think, Well, what causes this strong anger to arise? What is it that makes us have these very strong feelings of ill will and aversion? 
Because if we can understand the causes behind it, maybe we can change tracks a little bit. One of the causes is when we think of the harm that people have done to us, or some particular person has done to us, or to somebody we love. So when we think over and over again, this thought, this person has harmed me, this person has hurt me, that thought produces angry feelings. And it can be about a hurt that happened in the past, it can be a hurt that's happening in the present, it can be an imagined hurt in the future, the one that not, has not even happened, but we imagine it might happen and we get angry. There's another way that our angry thoughts come. Not only from thinking about the harm that people may have done us, but if we think about good things that people are doing for people that we don't like. So we also get angry. We don't like that. You know, if we're in a conflict of feeling a lot of jealousy or some difficulty with somebody and somebody else does something good for them, so we get angry. The third way that these strong angry feelings arise has to do with situations in which it's totally inappropriate for anger to be there. Just as a few examples of this, It happens often when we're projecting our own conditioning on other people, which happens a lot in interpersonal relationships, and our projections have nothing to do with how the person actually is. It's just our stuff, and we're not able to see it. Or we can get angry in situations that are completely impersonal, but we take them personally. I see this potential arising very often in my life because I do a lot of traveling by plane. And increasingly, you know, as I'm sure most of you know, there's just more and more hassle. You know, with canceled flights and delayed flights, just in coming here from California. A couple of hours before we were taking off, Sharon called the airport, the flight on time, yes, flight's leaving on time. We get to the airport, say, oh, I'm sorry, the flight is delayed four hours. <laughs> Which meant that instead of getting in at 10 at night, we get in at 1.30 in the morning. Okay, I mean, it was not totally okay, but... <laughs> <laughs> we get on the plane four or five hours later, we're then sitting on the plane for two hours because of some hydraulic something rather. You know, so we got in 3.30 or 4 in the morning. I can just see in situations like that, I can just see my mind going off on an annoyed and impatient track, you know, as if they're doing it to me. <laughs> if I see it and if I catch it, I just change tracks. It has nothing to do with me. It's just conditions and it's happening. And so I can either choose to be miserable 
or choose to be fine. And that has to do with watching my own mind. Another beautiful story of inappropriate anger about impersonal conditions We were teaching in the Soviet Union last summer, and we were in the Moscow airport, and there was a whole tourist group of uh, New Yorkers in the airport who were just leaving, who had been who had been in the Soviet Union for some time, and I recognized them very easily. <laughs> uh, and we overheard one conversation. One woman was talking to another person, and she was getting more and more worked up. She said, it really annoys me that all the signs are in the Russian alphabet. <laughs> you know, it makes it really hard to read. <laughs> and it's just such a classic example of what we all do. You know, it's not that it was so far. It's like there's this tendency in the mind just for ill will or anger to arise in conditions that have nothing to do with us personally. And when that happens, it destroys matter, it destroys love. The second kind of ill will, the first kind is the strong, aggressive striking out. The second kind of ill will is a weak kind. We call it a retreating kind of aversion, where we turn it back on ourselves. We're not striking out at other people. But this quality of aversion in the mind comes back on ourselves, and it comes back as excessive sorrow or grief, which is really a form of aversion. When we're lost, when we're overwhelmed by sorrow or by grief, as you may know, the mind loses all kind of balance. It loses its equilibrium. And we say, in, even in English, the expression, somebody's drowning in sorrow, or was stricken with grief. Just the intensity of being bound up in a way that's not necessarily harmful to others, but harmful to ourselves. And just as we can confuse love and desire, we can also confuse love and compassion with sorrow. It's very helpful to begin to see this difference. The stronger this far enemy of metta is, the stronger this feeling of ill will and anger and aversion, the more trouble we have in our lives. I think this is very helpful to reflect on and really to see for ourselves, to look in our lives to see if this is true. To the degree that anger and aversion is strongly conditioned and we keep on expressing it and feeding it and building it, to that extent we live with a lot of difficulty and a lot of suffering. to the degree that we begin to weaken this force through the development of metta, of loving-kindness, the trouble and difficulty in our lives 
begins to fall away. Happiness is available. Please help yourself to it. It has to do with understanding, each for ourselves, what is it that causes suffering and what is it that causes or brings happiness. One very helpful thing to remember in all of this has to do with a very deep part of the Buddhist teachings. Which is that all of these states, whether it's loving kindness and compassion, or desire and aversion and sorrow, that all of these states are non personal. They are arising because of causes. When the causes are there, the states will be there. We remove the causes, the resultant states disappear. This is the law of dependent origination, that everything is interconnected. There's one very important implication of this understanding, of this wisdom. That all of these qualities of the mind and the heart are non-personal. It means that when anger arises or desire arises, we don't have to condemn it. And we don't have to condemn ourselves. And when noble qualities arise, we don't take pride in them. We don't take them as being ourselves. Rather, we just understand the law, the Dharma. What things bring happiness? What things bring suffering? Develop the first, abandon the second. So the question now for us, having looked a little bit at this quality of metta, this quality of loving kindness, you know, the softness of the heart, the spaciousness of the mind, this feeling of generosity, that in a moment of metta what's happening is a very simple wishing for others' welfare in a very pure way, not wanting anything back. Just be happy. Be free of suffering. There's a tremendous purity in its simplicity. So in looking at this quality of metta, and also understanding the near enemy and the far enemy, the question is how can we develop, how can we cultivate and strengthen this feeling of loving-kindness, of loving-care. In the Buddhist teaching, there is one attribute which is the cause and condition for many wholesome states of mind. And that attribute is something which is called wise consideration. And over and over again, we see how wise consideration 
becomes the cause for the strengthening of wholesome states. So what kinds of wise consideration help us to strengthen love? Become the cause and condition for metta to arise. The first kind of wise consideration is so amazingly simple and obvious that we overlook it. It has so much common sense in it, and yet we just forget. And that is the focusing on the good qualities in people. That when we focus on their good qualities, feelings of love start to come. And when we focus on their bad qualities, feelings of resentment or ill will start to, start to come. And it's so clear from understanding ourselves and being in relationship with others that we are all a package. There's no one who is perfectly good and no one who is perfectly bad. We're all this package, packages. And if we can accept that and understand that, first we're not disappointed or we're not disillusioned when we see some negative qualities in people or in ourselves. And we understand that there is a choice of what we focus on, of where our interest is. You know, and it's, it's quite amazing the perverse delight our mind takes in being interested in the faults of others. <laughs> what? And naturally, as we focus on the faults, we're going to have unpleasant feelings. If we see that, if we understand what our minds are doing, and we make the effort to just change channels, let's look at the good qualities in people. And this doesn't mean that we don't see the other parts. It's not that we kind of have this blind blindness you know, to how people really are. We see the whole show, we see the whole package, but there's enough understanding so that we can actually choose that I'm going to really concentrate and be interested in those aspects in a person that are really good. I had an example of how effective this is as a very simple technique of relationship. There was somebody I knew some time ago who was a very aggressive person and quite an unpleasant personality. And it was really difficult to be with this person. And then one day, happened to see a work of art that they had done. And it was beautiful. It was just beautiful. And it opened me to that wonderful quality in this person that was just covered. It was just covered by this layer you know, of conditioning. And it was amazing, just from opening to the beauty that was underneath that in this person, I felt myself relating in a much more loving way. <laughs> 
And of course, as I started relating in a more loving way, what came back was a lot more loving kindness. You know, and it was, it was just a very simple thing. But it's remembering to do it. With some people, we may need to seek out these qualities a little more than in others. <laughs> but they're always there. You know, and it really is a great act of generosity. And it's a great uh, act of loving spirit to do that. To connect with what's good in people develops metta. It strengthens metta. Another thing that helps to overcome the two enemies of loving-kindness and strengthen the feeling of love is to learn how to see things from another person's perspective. Now, when we're having difficulties with people, or people are doing things that we don't approve of or that seem hurtful, instead of just rushing in and jumping in with our aversion and ill will and judgment, just to take some time to change our own perspective and see if we can see what it's like from that person's point of view. We may get a whole different picture. It helps to loosen things up a little bit. It helps to make some space for loving-kindness to arise. Seeing the good qualities in people and focusing on them, making the effort to relate to those qualities. Seeing things from other people's perspective. A third cause of metta is a feeling that Sometimes we don't appreciate or cultivate enough in our society. And that is the feeling of gratitude. When we reflect on the good things that people have done for us, it's wonderful to allow this feeling of gratitude to be there. And out of this feeling of gratitude comes a feeling of metta, comes a feeling of loving-kindness. Sometimes in intensive meditation, as the mind quiets down a little bit, you know, thoughts from long ago, you know, maybe from times of our childhood, or more recently, of what people have done for us. It might be our family, our parents, you know, our friends. We just these thoughts are reflections of the good things that they've done. Many people have done many good things for us. Just to open ourselves to that in a very natural way, not in a contrived way. To allow that feeling of gratitude to grow, and out of that we begin to feel this loving-kindness, this metta. The last way of cultivating metta is precisely what we're doing here, to cultivate it as a specific meditation practice. There are two ways of proceeding with metta as a meditation. One way, which we do generally in the Vipassana courses, 
is just to introduce it in a very general format. And there are no strict rules or guidelines for that. Just in whatever way people cultivate this wholesome thought of loving-kindness, by thinking of certain people or certain phrases, just doing it in a general way. The other way of developing it is as a specific concentration practice. And as a samadhi or concentration practice, it can lead us to some very deep states of samadhi or absorption. In Pali it's called jhana. The mind can become absorbed in this feeling of love, in this feeling of metta. The way we're practicing this week is actually laying the foundation for this development. We're doing it in a very systematic and progressive way. And where this leads to is to this deep state of concentration. This is not necessarily going to happen in a week of practice. But the way we're doing it is the format, is the foundation for it. And so, as I mentioned this afternoon, not only are we cultivating this, this strong feeling of love, we're actually strengthening in quite a profound way the powers of our concentration and one-pointedness. Metta, or loving-kindness, the simple generosity of the heart, which is a source of so many blessings. I'd like to close by reading a poem by Galway Cannell, who's a great New England poet. It's called St. Francis and the Sow. And it just, well, you'll see, or here. <laughs> St. Francis and the Sow. The bud stands for all things, even for those things that don't flower. For everything flowers from within of self-blessing. Though sometimes it is necessary to reteach a thing its loveliness, to put a hand on its brow of the flower and retell it in words and in touch, it is lovely, until it flowers again from within of self-blessing. As St. Francis put his hand on the creased forehead of the sow and told her in words and in touch, blessings of earth on the sow, the sow began remembering all down her thick length, from the earthen snout all the way through the fodder and slops to the spiritual curl of the tail, from the hard spininess spiked out from the spine down through the great broken heart to the blue milk and dreaminess spurting and shuddering from the fourteen teats into the fourteen mouths sucking and blowing beneath them the long, perfect loveliness of Sal.
Sometimes it is necessary to reteach a thing its loveliness. And that's what metta does. It reteaches ourselves and reteaches all beings their loveliness. Let's sit for a few minutes. This talk was given by Joseph Goldstein at Insight Meditation Society on February 24, 1990. It is an offering of the Dharma. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.